Welcome to day 39 of the story that changes everything. Today's readings are Leviticus chapters 22 through 24 and Psalm 17. Here's some thoughts to guide your reading for today. Today I thought we would switch it up a little bit and start with the psalm text for today, Psalm 17. It's a prayer for deliverance accredited to David, and it opens with this line, Listen to what's right, Lord. Pay attention to my cry. Listen closely to my prayer. It's spoken by lips that don't lie. David goes on to say in verse 3, You've looked me over closely but haven't found anything wrong. My mouth doesn't sin. That's quite a claim. David is confident that God will hear his prayer and deliver him, at least in part, because David is approaching God with integrity and honesty. Perhaps that's a good way to get into Leviticus chapter 22, the last chapter in the book related to the priesthood. This chapter reaffirms what has been clear in each of the five chapters that have addressed the work of the priest. God has a high level of expectation for the character and actions of those administering the tabernacle. As verse 2 says, Tell Aaron and his sons to be very careful how they treat holy things. This careful attention to purity and ritual can seem quite overdone to our modern and often quite casual sensibilities. Later 6th century prophets like Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, and Micah will give scathing rebukes to the people for caring about the forms of worship without enacting God's justice and living faithfully. However, the prophet Malachi will be a kind of countervoice to them, expressing his concern that the leaders of the temple and tabernacle did not take God's presence seriously enough and with enough care. And perhaps we need both of those voices. On our recent trip to Rome, I got to see the Sistine Chapel for the first time. In our tour group was a young boy that I would guess was probably around 10 or 11 years old. And within 10 minutes of our early morning tour through the Vatican Museum, he was utterly bored and generally acting cranky. Finally, his frustrated father handed him a smartphone and the kid started entertaining himself by playing various video games. So when we got into the Sistine Chapel, there were only a handful of people in there. And and here we were, just us, in this amazing and holy space, a, a space that's so reverent, they won't let you take pictures. They just want you to experience it. So here we are, surrounded by Michelangelo's beautiful masterpieces. And in the center of it, here was this bored kid looking down and playing something like Fruit Ninja or Angry Birds on a smartphone. My daughter Sophie was so angry. She came over and said, Dad, please let me just hit that kid in the head. Uh, I tell that story perhaps to help us try and appreciate the oddness of these texts. Yahweh, the God who created the universe, has chosen to camp in the middle of a people The presence of the Holy One may then require our recognition and certainly our reverence and awe. Our culture hungers for a God who meets us where we are, but we also hunger for a holiness, an an otherness that is so great that it may actually require our carefulness, our attention, it may demand that we set down the fruit ninja and angry birds long enough to just simply be struck by the awe that God is with us. Chapter 23 returns to a description of the rituals that will define the worship life of Israel and that will end the book of Leviticus. 
This section begins by listing and describing the primary holy celebrations that will shape the annual life of God's people. The phrase appointed times is used 11 times in this chapter and only three more times in the rest of the scripture. In this chapter, there are six appointed times described. The first of those, Sabbath keeping, becomes the regular and most definitive practice for Israel. The second is Passover, which is then followed by the third, the festival of unleavened bread. Both of these are celebrated in the spring when the first fruits of the barley crop is emerging, and both celebrations reenact God's delivering of the people from Egypt. Fifty days later is the fourth appointed time, the Festival of Weeks, or Pentecost. This celebration takes place in the summer during the first fruits of the wheat harvest and commemorates God's giving of the law or Torah to the people. On the tenth day of the seventh lunar month is the Day of Atonement, which was described in detail in chapter 17. It is the fifth annual event. Five days later, the last appointed time, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths begins. This takes place in the fall at the harvest of the grapes and olives, and it reenacts the years of God's provision and care for the people in the wilderness. It's interesting to some scholars that this final celebration, after all the crops are in and the house is full of stuff, that the people then go outside and they humble themselves and live in booths or tents and spend several days reminding themselves that they were once aliens and strangers in the wilderness. I love this chapter because of the intentional way it tries to form the people through liturgical practice. The people and their children will know their story and understand their particular identity as God's people, not just because they've heard the story repeatedly, but because they have relived it year after year in these liturgical remembrances. Today, we try to do a similar thing by living into Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, and what we call ordinary time. Like Israel, our theology comes to us not just through our heads, but through our bodies. Chapter 24 describes the consistent and daily practice of keeping the oil lights burning and keeping the bread fresh that represents all the people. An odd and quite frightening story, the second of the three narratives in the entire book of Leviticus, is awkwardly inserted here. It's the story of a man who's part Egyptian and part Israelite, who curses God and then ends up getting stoned to death by the community. Scholars are not only puzzled about its meaning, but also wonder why it gets inserted in this location. The story has some echoes of the earlier story of Moses, himself a kind of Egyptian slash Israelite, who in the early chapters of Exodus gets in a fight and kills an Egyptian man. So some wonder, is this story or this man a reverse reflection of Moses? Is the point of the story that the law among the Israelites is applied equally to all, no matter where you come from or what your heritage or background is? Is the primary concern in the story cursing God? Are the people afraid that if God is cursed, that God might take his presence away from them? It's difficult to discern the story's primary meaning. I do think the story likely has something to do with how seriously God takes our words. In the Lex Talionis Codes, the eye-for-an-eye framework, Justice for murder seems obvious, a life for a life, but what should be the punishment for destroying somebody through the use of words? The Torah seems to think the old sticks and stones adage is not actually true. Words can be incredibly destructive, and this 
text clearly recognizes that to be the case. As I'm recording this, the beginning of Advent is just around the corner. I can feel it in the weather. My internal body clock just seems to sense that we're getting ready to start that liturgical year again. These final chapters of ritual want us to root our faith deep in our bones and in our imagination. We may not have a lampstand to light daily, but perhaps the Word can be a daily lamp for our feet and a light to our path. So read today's scriptures carefully, looking for things you've never seen before. Listen to what the Spirit might say to you through the scripture today. Journal your thoughts, your prayers, your questions, and give me oil for my lamp and keep me burning, burning, burning. Our readings for tomorrow are the last three chapters of the book, Leviticus chapters 25 through 27. We'll talk to you tomorrow.